0: Welcome, everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health, and today we are joined by one of the major thought leaders in this challenging times we've gone through the last few years, and that's Matthias Desmet. He is a uh, professor of clinical psychology at the University of Ghent in Belgium, and many of you may recall his work being heavily promoted by uh, Dr. Robert Malone, who radically popularized it when he was on a Joe Rogan podcast, and uh, I believe in New Year's Eve, uh, which, if you don't recall, was seen by at least 50 million people. And during that podcast, he discussed Dr. Desmet's uh, concept of mass formation. And interestingly, shortly after that, no surprise, that term, mass formation, uh, was very popular in the Google search engine. And then, uh, interestingly, in addition to that, Google decided to immediately, um, I guess shadow ban or gaslight or both of them, that term. And they basically totally manipulated the search engine results for that and attempted to de- uh, de- de- uh, discredit the concept and, and Dr. Desmond. So, um, so um the concepts that you're this mass form I mean you call, give it the term mass formation and that is seems to be a clinical term but it's certainly useful in, in uh, conveying the concept but I think for most of us watching it I think if we could just simply substitute the word hypnosis we would be right on target and that's what they've done and i I just really looking forward to dialoguing with you about Some of the ways they've done this, you know, sort of repeating some of your foundational premises and then loads of questions that relate to things I haven't seen you discuss previously on podcasts, but that relate to the technology and the advancements of of the technological capacities that have really only occurred in the 21st century. Because much of your work, I think, accurately reflects back to uh, the tech, uh, uh, the, ty- the tyr- ty- tyrannies that have developed in the past, specifically in uh, Russia and in Germany. And you referenced Hannah Arendt's work so much that I decided to get a copy of her book and read it. And uh, I couldn't get all the way through it because your book was so much better. You've writ- writ- Your new book is The Psychology of Totalitarianism, I believe. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it-, it is brilliant. I mean, it's so much easier to read than Hannah's book. Uh, and it's so much more current, and it just makes a lot more sense. I mean, she, she's good for the basics. I think, think you seems like you extracted a lot of the principles from her pioneering work, but but you really have done a magnificent job on it. So, with all that um, preface, I want to welcome you and
1: thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Yes,
0: yeah. So, um, I guess maybe if you could. So, I mean, you you also have a master's degree in statistics, although that's you're not a statistician. Uh, but that really, I guess, uh, flavored your views as this, we entered into this pandemic and really helped you understand that this we were dealing with just irrational viewpoints. So why don't you share with us what motivated you to really bring this concept that I think is so desperately needed to, to, un, to help people that can, can be helped, who aren't hypnotized, to understand that we need to learn from history and you provide an incredible historical context that can accurately predict the future.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh well, yes, and and um you know um hmm in the beginning of the crisis, of the corona crisis, so back in uh, February 2020, I started to, to to study the statistics a little bit uh, on the mortality rates of the virus and the, the infection fatality rate, the case fatality rate and so on, and immediately I got the impression and, and with me actually several a uh, world-famous statistician such as uh, John Ioannidis of Stanford, for instance, to name only one. So I immediately got the impression that, like the the, the statistics and the medical and the mathematical models that were used, uh, dramatically overrated the dangerousness of the virus. And um, in the beginning of the crisis, I immediately, from the first week on of the crisis, I, I wrote an opinion paper. Um, trying to to, to bring uh, uh, some of the mistakes to people's attention, but I noticed immediately that people just didn't want to know. It was as if they didn't see uh, uh, even the most blatant uh, mistakes uh, at the level of the of the of the, of the statistics that were used. That people just were not able were not capable to see it. And uh, and one way or another, I decided quite early in an early stage that uh I, I i should uh focus on the psychological mechanisms that were at play in society and and as I lectured for uh, since five or six years about a mass formation and the specific effects of mass formation, which is actually a specific kind of group formation um I noticed uh quite i think from may. 2020 onwards, I I I I got the impression that what we were what we were dealing with in society was a large scale process of mass formation, indeed. So I tried to describe that process of mass formation in such a way that many people could understand it. And um, and well, this 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 process of mass formation, indeed, like the the, the most salient characteristics of it or for instance that it makes people radically blind for everything that goes against the narrative they believe in so mass formation is like a kind of group dynamic that emerges in society under very specific conditions and the, the, it has very strong effects at the psychological level and one of the most crucial is that it makes people completely blind for everything it, it, it makes people incapable of taking a critical distance from what they believe in. And then also uh, another very specific characteristic is that this process of mass formation uh, makes people willing to radically sacrifice everything that is important to them. Even the health, their health, their wealth, the the, the health of their children, the future of their children. When someone is in the grip of a process of mass formation, he becomes radically willing to to sacrifice uh, all his individual interests, for instance. And then a third characteristic, to name only a few, is that once people are in the grip of a process of mass formation, they typically show a tendency to commit cruelties towards the people that do not buy into the narrative or that do do not go along with the narrative. And they typically do so as if it is an ethical duty. And Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, they are typically inclined first to stigmatize and then to eliminate, to destroy the people who do not go along with the masses. And that's why it is so extremely important to understand the psychological mechanisms at work. Because if you understand the the mechanisms at work, you can avoid the mass formation to become so deep that people reach this critical point In which they really are convinced fanatically convinced that they should destroy everyone that does not go along with them so that's it's extremely important to understand the mechanism if you understand it you can make sure that the masses will first the crowd the mass will first destroy itself or will exhaust itself before it starts to destroy the people that do not go along with the mass. So it's of crucial importance. And that's actually what my book describes. It describes how a mass or a crowd emerges in a society, under which conditions it emerges in a society, what the mechanisms of the process of mass formation are, and what you can do about it. You can never, that's extremely important, I will mention this from the beginning, usually it is impossible to wake up the masses once a process of mass formation emerges in a society it's usually extremely difficult to wake the masses up but that's important you can avoid that the masses and their leaders become so fanatically convinced of the narrative that they start to destroy the people who do not go along with them so that's crucial i think and and it's it all depends and then and, and in order to really understand what we can do, you have to understand the psychological mechanism as well as possible. And then you will see that actually mass formation, as you mentioned already, is identical to hypnosis. It's not similar, it's identical. Mass formation <laughs> is, is a kind of hypnosis in in the full technical psychological sense of the word, it's hypnosis and a kind of hypnosis which which emerges under very specific conditions and that's exactly what happened for instance in the soviet union in nazi germany which were examples of uh, totalitarianism from the early 20th century uh, we are totalitarianism which a, a totalitarian state is something radically different from a classical dictatorship for instance and the main difference is situated at the psychological level a classical dictatorship at the psychological level is very primitive it's just society that is scared of a small group dictatorial regime because of its aggressive potential but a totalitarian state which was radically new in the 20th century it didn't exist totalitarian states didn't exist before the 20th century a totalitarian state is based on a completely different psychological mechanism it's based on mass formation which is a hypnosis which emerges under very specific conditions which were met just before the emergence of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, in which we're met again, even more, just before the corona crisis. So that's so typical. It's a different kind of totalitarianism now. It's not the same. It's a technocratic totalitarianism. Um, but but the basic psychological dynamic and mechanism is the same. It's mass formation. So you,
0: you had mentioned the... Uh the tendency towards uh, cruelty and inhibitions to that really removed when they're in the mass formation. And, you know, I reflect on some of the things that happened and was literally shocked to see the behavior of some of the people attempting to enforce these mandates and such. And they were literally doing more harm than they were trying to prevent. It, It was, I mean, they were injuring and just Cruel, violent behavior to hitting pe- people who aren't wearing masks with with clubs, like they were killing someone. When they when they were just so committed to the narrative, and it, it seems like one of the most astonishing aspects of the mass formation is the abandonment of the critical thinking skills. That if they had just looked at it objectively they could see that there was a rational behavior and there's just no way they could justify what they were doing but it just because of this this hypnosis they just engage in the behavior which is just you know from someone who's not familiar with what's going on it's
1: literally shocking yeah, it is it is yes it is i think mass formation in the first place is a process that uh, is affective effective in nature not so, not so much cognitive and once you understand that you also understand why Uh, um, people become so fanatic during mass formation maybe do we have some time to go a little bit into the details of the of the oh sure absolutely sure so uh, as i mentioned um it actually mass formation emerges in a society when very specific psychological conditions are met and the most crucial condition is that many people should feel socially isolated or lonely There should be many people that stopped resonating with their natural and social environment. And for instance, just before the corona crisis, the number of people that felt lonely was extremely high, probably higher than ever before in history. 30% of the people worldwide reported in a Gallup World Poll that they did not have one meaningful relationship and that they only connected to other people through the internet, so that's one important aspect. What imp- one important condition that was met. And then, once people feel socially isolated, something else will happen. They will typically start to be confronted with experiences of lack of meaning making. That makes sense. It's it's logical. Just because people are social social beings, and if they uh, if if the, the bond with the other deteriorates, uh, they will typically start to experience a lack of meaning making. And that's also, that was also extremely high. The number of people who experienced lack of meaning making was extremely high. 60% of the people worldwide, for instance, reported before the corona crisis that they considered their own job to be completely meaningless. That were the so called bullshit jobs described by David Graeber in his, uh, in his uh, book, uh, uh, Bullshit Jobs. Uh, and only 15% of the people worldwide reported that they considered their job meaningful. The rest was somewhere in between. And once in this condition of a lack of social bond and a lack of meaning-making, people are typically confronted with what we call free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means anxiety, frustration, and aggression that are not connected to mental representations, meaning that people feel anxious, but they don't know what they feel anxious for. They feel aggressive, frustrated, but they don't know what they feel aggressive for or what they feel frustrated for. And that's typical condition. Social isolation, lack of meaning making, um, free floating anxiety, frustration and aggression is highly aversive because if people feel anxious, but without knowing what they feel anxious for they typically feel out of control they feel they cannot protect themselves from their anxiety for their anxiety so uh, and under these conditions something very typical might happen if under these conditions a narrative is distributed through the mass media indicating an object of anxiety and at the same time, providing a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, then all this free-floating anxiety might connect to the object of anxiety, and there might be a huge willingness to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, no matter how absurd the strategy is. Even if it is clear from the beginning, for everyone who wants to see it, that the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety might claim much more victims than the object of anxiety itself, as was the case, I think, in the corona crisis. Even then, there might be this huge willingness to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. That is the first step of every major mechanism of mass formation, whether it was about, whether it concerned the Crusades or the witch hunts or the French Revolution or the beginning of the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany. We see the same Mechanism time and time again. There is a lot of free floating anxiety. Someone provides an, a, a narrative which indicates an object of anxiety and a strategy to deal with the narrative. And then all the anxiety connects to the object of anxiety. People participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety that yields a first important psychological advantage. From then on, people have the impression that they can control their anxiety. It's connected to an object and they have a strategy to deal with it. And then in a second step, something even much more important happens. Because many people participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, a new social bond emerges. So people have the feeling, symptomatically, that they are no longer lonely, that they are no longer isolated. And that's the real reason. This leads to a kind of mental intoxication. A kind of new connectedness which is the real reason why people buy into the narrative no matter how wrong it is even if it is utterly absurd they will continue to buy into the narrative they will con- because it creates this new social bond and in one way or another we could say well is that a problem because people felt lonely and now they feel connected again yes it is a problem because all this free-floating frustration and aggression needs to be directed at someone. And that's always directed at this part of the population that doesn't want to go along in the narrative, with the narrative. And a second problem, even much more problematic, is that um, this new social bond that emerges in the masses or in the crowd is not a social bond between individuals. It's not a social bond between individuals It's a social bond between every individual separately and the collective, meaning that in a mass, people feel a fanatic solidarity that's typical for masses, a fanatic citizenship, but it's never a solidarity towards individuals. It's always a solidarity towards the collective. And that means that that explains, for instance, why during the Corona crisis, everybody was uh, talking about solidarity but people accepted that if someone got an accident on the street you were no longer allowed to help that person unless you, ex- you, 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 you had a, a surgical mouth mask uh, and, uh, and gloves at your disposal which almost nobody has that also explained why while everybody was talking about solidarity with the elderly people accepted that if their father or mother was dying They were not allowed to visit them. So that's the strange solidarity that exists in a mass or a crowd. It's not a solidarity with other individuals. It's always a solidarity of the individual towards the collective. And that in its turn, in its uh in its turn explains why totalitarian state states always, which are always based on mass formation, always end up in a radical. Paranoid atmosphere in which people absolutely do not trust each other anymore, and in which people are willing to report themselves and their loved ones to the government. So that's the problem with mass formation: its solidarity of the individual with the collective and never with other individuals. That explains why, as happened during the, the uh, revolution in Iran, for instance, I talked with a woman, with a woman who um, who lived in Iran during the revolution which which was actually the beginning of a totalitarian regime in, in Iran, and in which she witnessed with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the government and how she hung the rope around his neck just before he died and how she claimed to be a heroine for doing so. That's the, the dramatic effects of mass formation.
0: I don't think you could describe a more horrifying, despicable behavior than a mother killing her son. I mean, it's just, I mean, that, if it, if you can reach into the mind and cause that type of behavior, you've got a very, very powerful tool. Mm. So um, now you had mentioned earlier that totalitarianism really only existed in the 20th century, uh, not before then. So I'm wondering if you can compare things a bit because the, the value of, of learning from history is enormous. As I mentioned, it helps us really get the tools so that we can prepare ourselves for the future. But I'm wondering if the totalitarianism from last century isn't dramatically different from what we're experiencing now, and, and in two ways. One is that it seemed to be isolated to specific countries, and even in the earliest part of the 21st century, as you mentioned, in Iran. But There's two things that seems to have changed. One is the explosion, the exponential explosion of the advancement of technology. I mean, it literally doubles every year or two what we're able to do. So that that increase in technological proficiency uh, allows us much more sophisticated and capable tools of influencing this mass formation, the ability to hypnotize people. Far more effectively than they did when literally in Germany and Russia, all they had was radio. That was it. Uh, and newspapers, but you know now we've got social media and a and this, this consistent barrage and, and uh, barrage, but control of the mainstream media, literally. So I, I'm wondering. So that's one. And one is let, let's address the technological component first. Do you, do you think that has made a significant difference? And in, 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 it seems like it's so much more effective, and it can lead into what my next question would be was. emerging from the the single country totalitarianism to essentially a global totalitarianism, which it seems like we're on the path, accelerating path to to that being achieved.
1: Yes, yes, yes. That are two two, two most important differences, of course. Uh, But I think that, um, indeed, I think the mechanism, the basic mechanism, is the same. Right, so right. The basic the basic, mecha- the, ba- the basic mechanism. Totalitarian regimes always use indoctrination and propaganda in the first place, uh, and then in a, in, a, in a third place, they often use terror. And so, but but the the, the first and most important uh, strategy of totalitarian regimes is always to use indoctrination and propaganda, intuitively or consciously. It depends. Like uh, Stalin did it in a very intentional, conscious way. Uh, Hitler in a, in, a, in, a, in a little bit more intuitive way, but in, in both cases, or totalitarian regimes, always realize uh, that that uh, their grip on the population uh, is a psychological grip in the first place, and that's why they have to provoke like a kind of they, they have to maintain a kind of hypnosis through indoctrination and propaganda by infusing the voice of the leaders in the population constantly. So that's what's happening. So and actually. I, that's so important to understand that it is it is a kind of hypnosis. So what is what is hypnosis? In in, in hypnosis, when a hypnotist hypnotizes someone, in the first step, he detaches, he withdraws the attention of someone from reality, from the environment, and then through his hypnotic suggestion, he focuses all the attention on one single point. And I think it's important to understand uh, that mechanism a little bit. Uh, in order to answer your question mm-hmm. so in the first stage the hypnosis withdraws the attention of someone from the environment and then through his hypnotic, hypnotic suggestion he focuses so which is like actually a simple narrative he articulates uh, uh, in front of the hypnotized um, he focuses all the attention on one small aspect of reality for instance a pendulum that moves before the eyes of the hypnotized or or just. Uh, a narrative or his voice. And then, once this happened, it seems as if reality doesn't exist anymore for the hypnotized person. And this to an extreme extent, and to give the people who are listening an, an, an idea of the, of the strength, the power of this mechanism, we can look at what happened at, 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 at when uh, hypnosis is used. Uh, to make people insensitive to pain during surgical operations, a really simple hypnotic procedure in which a physician or a hypnotist focuses the patient's attention on a small aspect of reality is sufficient to make someone radically insensitive to pain to this extent that the surgeon can cut through the skin, the flesh, and even straight through the breastbone to perform an open heart operation without the patient noticing it. So that shows how incredibly strong this focusing of the attention is. And that's exactly what happens during a mass formation. First, there is this period in which uh, the, peop- the, the, the population starts to, to feel socially isolated, in which all the emotions, the psychological energy is uh, withdrawn from uh, from the environment, from the population. And then suddenly, as I ex- just explained, there is this narrative in the mass media which focuses all the attention, for instance, on the Jews, but also on the coronavirus or on the anti-vaxxers. And then once all the attention is focused on this one point, the rest of reality seems not to exist anymore. So that's what is happening. So for instance, uh, no matter how many victims the corona measures claim, People starving, uh, children starving in developing countries, uh, 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 and so on. Uh, this won't have a psychological impact anymore because the attention is focused on this one point of reality. So once we understand that, we and, and indeed understand that that's why all this propaganda and all this indoctrination is constantly used, just to just because a totalitarian regime feels that it has to keep. Yeah people, and to the process of mass formation. Can I, can I interrupt you for a moment? Because I just I
0: have such an apt example to, to illustrate that point so effectively, because and it has to do with those who are dying from the side effects of the vaccine. And there are many. There are some projections that it's over a million right now. But what it just shocks me, and I've seen it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, and it, not personally, but read reports in the, in the media. That someone prominent, a celebrity or something, will get the vaccine and literally within a day or two die, and their friends and family are convinced it's absolutely unrelated and just a coincidence, and it probably would have been worse if they had not been vaxxed. Yes, exactly. absolute divorce from any critical thinking skill, and it, it, it just so powerfully exemplifies what
1: you just said. What you just said—it's it's a the classic example. Yes, it is. I experienced the same several times. Mm-hmm. and even even while i know the mechanisms at work i'm still baffled every time it happens <laughs> it's hard not
0: husband. to be
1: <laughs> yes i just almost can't believe what i see
0: yeah.
1: i know someone whose uh, husband uh, died a few days after the uh, vaccine during his sleep from a heart attack and i thought like well now she will open her eyes wake up <laughs> but that, not at all not at all not at all she just uh Continued in the same fanatic way, even more fanatic. Uh, um, talking about uh, how happy we should be because uh, we have these vaccines and stuff. Um, unbelievable, yes, unbelievable, yes. And indeed, um, um, well, now uh, we are confronted with the with this with the kind of totalitarian phenomenon and the phenomenon of mass formation, which is worldwide um, and which uh, has no external enemies anymore. Mm-hmm. I think. At the same time, that's a disadvantage and an advantage for the people who uh, do not go along with the narrative, who are not into the process of mass formation. Um, It's a disadvantage because, of course, the totalitarian system, which is worldwide, cannot be destroyed by external enemies. That's a disadvantage. Uh, uh, For instance, Nazi Germany was destroyed uh, by external enemies. That cannot happen anymore now. But, and that's... uh, In in several respects, it's also an advantage because totalitarian states always need an enemy. They always need an enemy. That's something that was very well described by George Orwell Mm -hmm. uh, in 1984, for instance, in order for the process of mass formation to continue to exist. You always need an external enemy. Um, And at the same time, like internal the resistance from within a totalitarian state um, also has, like, can be very efficient. It can be very efficient. And that's so crucial. We have to realize that. The resistance from within a totalitarian system always has to stick to the principles of non-violent resistance. That has been remarked time and time again. Time and time again, people who studied mass formation have remarked that nonviolent resistance, for instance, Hannah Arendt, talked about it very extensively, that nonviolent resistance is very efficient from within, as a, as a, as a kind of resistance from within. And the first and foremost a principle the resistance has to stick to during a process of mass formation and emerging totalitarianism is that the people who, go, who do not go along with the masses have to continue to speak out. That's the most crucial thing. And you can easily understand that. As totalitarianism is based on mass formation. And mass formation is a kind of hypnosis. It is always provoked. The mass formation is always provoked by the voice of the leader. The voice of the leader, which keeps the population in a process of hypnosis. And when dissonant voices continue to speak out. They will not be able to wake the masses up. And that's crucial. That's really crucial. They will not be able to wake the masses up. Someone like Gustave Le Bon described this already in the 19th century. They will not be able to wake the masses up, but they will constantly disturb the process of mass formation. They will constantly disturb, interfere with the hypnosis. And Gustave Le Bon, for instance, described this already in the 19th century, that if there are people who continue to speak out, the mass formation will usually not become so deep that there is a willingness in the population to destroy the people who do not go along with the masses. That's crucial. And that's also, historically speaking, if you look, for instance, at what happened in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany, it's clear that it was exactly at the moment the resistance or the opposition stopped to speak out in public space that... Uh, the totalitarian system uh, started to become cruel. For instance, in 1930, in the Soviet Union, the opposition stopped to speak out and within six to eight months, Stalin started his large purges, which uh, claimed tens of millions of victims. And then in 1935, exactly the same happened in Nazi Germany. The opposition was silenced or stopped to speak out, preferred to go underground. They were thinking that they were dealing with a classical dictatorship, but they were not. They were dealing with something completely different. They were dealing with a totalitarian state and by deciding to go underground, uh, uh, underground, they just, uh, 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 it was a fatal decision for themselves. So also in Nazi Germany, within a period of one year after the opposition stopped to speak out in public space, the cruelty started and the system started to destroy first its opponents that's always the same in the first stage totalitarian systems or the masses start to attack those who do not go along with them with them but after a while they just start to attack and to destroy everyone group after group in the soviet union where the process of mass formation went uh, uh, very far much further than in nazi germany We first noticed, we could first observe that Stalin started to eliminate uh, the aristocracy, the small farmers, the large farmers, the goldsmiths, the Jews, all people who, according to him, would never become uh, good communists. But after a while, he just started to eliminate group after group without any logic. Just everyone. So that's why Hannah Arendt said that a totalitarian state is always a monster that devours its own children. So then that typically, that destructive process starts, when people stop to speak out, that's probably the reason why, in the beginning of the twentieth century, there were several countries, a lot of countries actually, where this was this mass formation, but where there was never a full-fledged totalitarian state. Probably because there were enough people who didn't shut up, who continued to speak out. If that—that's—that's that's something that is so crucial to understand, in it. When a mass formation emerges, people who try to speak out typically feel, um, well, have the feeling that it doesn't make sense to speak out because people don't wake up and, and because people doesn't, mm-hmm. don't seem sensitive to their rational counter-arguments. But we should never forget that's so important that speaking out has an immediate effect. Maybe not that it wakes the masses up, but that it disturbs. Uh, The process of mass formation and the hypnosis, and in that way, prevents the masses to become highly destructive, uh, literally destructive, uh, towards the people who do not go along with them. And in that case, something else happens: the the masses start to exhaust themselves; they start to um, uh, destroy themselves before they start to destroy the people who don't go along with them. So that's the strategy to be used for internal resistance towards totalitarianism. Can I stop
0: you there? Because I wanted to uh, tie that together with my earlier question, which we really didn't address, which was the technological advancements in the 21st century relative to the 20th. And it it relates to your most important principle, which is to speak out. No argument. I think that is crucial and critical. But it ties back to my earlier question, though, and the fact that much of our communication, our ability to speak out is not so much in groups locally where we live. I mean, the average person doesn't even know their neighbor. So, I mean, they're speaking, They're, they're typically the communication is through the Internet and virtual. So now we've got this 21st century technology of the Internet that has allowed the government and the, and the modern mainstream media to essentially control that and censor that speaking out. So entire entire groups of individuals myself included and many others have mm. been deplatformed and our voices discredited so they get the mainstream media going 24/7 saying lies that support their narrative and and really limit the ability of that speaking out to be heard by the masses. So in my mind it seems that the ability to to, to implement that that really important aspect of speaking out is been throttled back and limited so much because of the advancement of technology.
1: Yes, I think up until now it works in two directions. Indeed, as you've said like uh, the uh, the mainstream now has a has a uh, a machine to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to to disseminate.
0: Yeah, the- last week we got the the ministry of truth
1: disinformation <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah the real <laughs> ministry of truth. Yes, absolutely. So they have a machinery now that of, uh, of which the 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 Nazis and the and the communists could only dream of. that's <laughs> much, <more, laughs> much, more, much more powerful now. But I think up until now it goes in two directions. Also, the people who do not, who who want to go against the narrative, also have means at their disposal. We have social mm-hmm. media and stuff through which we can also um, um, speak out in a, in a in a in a in a much more effective way. And mm-hmm. I'm. My my intuition tells me that within a period of a few years we will be banned from social media if we do not uh, uh, um, buy into the narrative. I think we might That's be. Banned.
0: happening now.
1: It's not two years. It's happening now to a certain extent. It's happening now to a certain extent, and it will happen even more radically. I think in 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 Europe here uh, we 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 might. Uh, the government might introduce uh, the so-called uh, european digital id i don't know if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. but it's like a kind of qr code which centralizes all the information of an individual the financial the judicial the the judicial the of the, the health information and so on on one yeah it's, it's,
0: the, it's the precursor to the CBDCs. It's
1: a, yes, it is right before it
0: yeah
1: it is so um uh we might be Banned more radically from uh, from uh, social media, but at the same time, I think in that case we will have to continue to speak out, but in a different way. In the real world, as good and as well as it get, as it, as it as it works, and I think it will work because we should not forget that uh, while we are speaking out now on the internet, we have an effect uh, around the globe. So that's important. But at the same time, when you talk in the real world. Your voice has, an, has a different effect. It has. A, it what has do a, you mean? What do you mean by the real world? Well, when we when we talk when uh, to someone uh, like, just face to face. Okay, that's what uh, I the, thought you meant. Okay. In the real world, it has a real conversation has different effects. It has much more a resonating effect. People often tell me that if they attend the lecture of me, that um, uh, they experience my, my speech in a different way than if I talk through the internet. Mm-hmm. The, inter- the internet is. Ex- extremely helpful and extremely mm-hmm. efficient to spread information information is extremely uh, efficient to do so but maybe at the level of the resonance of the voice and at the level of the the, the deep physical effect of speech mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. might have more and more profound effects when we talk in the real world so you'll have to find out how we it's oh, a very we, good point very good point yeah so, I, I well, it will be difficult, of course it will be difficult, because we are facing the emergence of a technocratic state, a technocratic system, it will mm-hmm. use all means and all its power, I think, uh, to try to impose itself to society, so uh, it will be a difficult time, but we should accept the challenge, uh, and, and no matter how, uh, continue to speak out, uh, and I'm sure in that case, um, that uh, that uh, we will be able to prevent uh, uh um well that the same happens as happened uh, before initially um, um but we will be uh, uh, we will have to be prepared of course uh, to lose uh some things that that yeah we will probably not be able to avoid that no so
0: that's such a crucial point. I think the fact that uh, you, you, when it, as I was listening to you answer my question, it occurred to me that, yes, indeed, there are platforms, newer platforms that have emerged since essentially YouTube has been eliminated as uh, for almost you know well over ninety ninety five percent of people who are seeking to speak against the narrative. Uh, so there's other emerging pal- platforms like like BitChute and Rumble and and some other video platforms that this message can be spread uh, spread. So that is useful, but it, but it, it's important to to meet together with people locally and, and in 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 person in real life to, and share this message. But I'm wondering <clears throat> just because we you know, I just have not heard you. I'm sure you've done it, but in the, the, the previous interviews, I haven't seen you mention it. But I wonder if you could comment on the numbers. If we divide the population into three groups, one group is absolutely hypnotized. There is nothing you could ever say to get them out of that hypnosis. It's it's literally physiologically impossible. Then there's the people who who have not lost their critical thinking skills, and the people in the group in the middle. So I've heard. Experts say it's like thirty percent of each of the other the two groups, and the the group in the middle is six is six, wait forty yes. percent.
1: What, what would you what would you put the numbers at? Well, it depends on the on the stage of the process of mass formation, I think. But definitely in the well, I think it's more. I think it's like thirty percent who are really in the hypnosis in the mass formation who who really believe the narrative, you could say, mm-hmm. and, and um, then then about sixty percent. Who uh, who feels that there is something wrong with the narrative, but who wow. will know. Yes, it's a lot. That's a lot. Usually, but it's that's only
0: ten a... percent that didn't buy it.
1: No, it's a small group. Yes, it's a small group. I
0: did not realize it. That is,
1: why is it? I did. I thought it was higher. No, wow. No. It depends. No, usually not. It's like like psychological experiments also show this number. Wow. Yes, this percentage, and also also extremely important is that also the, the public leaders of the masses. So the people, who, the people who pronounce the hypnotizing narrative in public space usually are hypnotized themselves. So that's mm-hmm. extremely important. That's something that is very well described by Gustave Lebon. Mm-hmm. He says that the, the, the leaders of the masses, and we are talking then really about the people who articulate the narrative in public space. So not the people who maybe manipulate things from behind the screens, but in the first place, the people in public who articulate the, 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 the narrative that leads to the mass formation in public space, they usually or hypnotize themselves. All, Gustave Le Bon said without exception, you can never hypnotize a mass or you can never provoke a process of mass formation if you do not fanatically believe of, and that's important, extremely important, the people who lead the masses fanatically believe in the ideology they promote. So meaning that, for instance, in this situation here in the Corona crisis, the underlying ideology of the people who are in charge here is transhumanism, I think. People who who promote these narratives believe that in order to overcome uh, the problems we are facing, Maybe climate change or 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 the terrorism or 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 the coronavirus, it's all the same. Yeah. Uh, we have to reshape society from a democracy into a technocracy for all kinds of reasons. They believe that uh, the future is ready for a technocratic state system. You, if you if you want to like someone like Yuval Harari describes this very well in his book uh Homo Deus, for instance. So people believe that. Uh, only the transhumanist technocratic ideology can save the world. And that's how a society should be reshaped. But, and now that's important, most people who lead the masses, who articulate this narrative, fanatically believe in the underlying ideology, transhumanism, technocracy, but a part of them doesn't believe a single word, word of the narratives they use. They consider the narratives they use, for instance, the climate narrative or uh, the Corona narrative. They consider the narrative, the narratives they use, purely as a kind of justified manipulation of the population to convince the population to accept um, all the societal uh, changes that have to happen in order to install this transhumanist um, uh, technocratic. Uh, system, so that's important. They fanatically believe in the ideology, but quite often they absolutely don't believe the narratives they use to convince people to uh, accept uh, the ideological changes they uh, they promote. So that's the better you understand that, the better you know that it's also extremely important towards the leaders to continue to speak out because also the leaders will become much more fanatic. If, they have no, if there is no counter-argumentation anymore, if there is no dissonant voice anymore. Um, so, um, yes, so in the, in the end, in the end, what is the, the ultimate challenge is to try to show people that not so much that the coronavirus was not as, as dangerous as we expected or that, for uh, Uh, that the narrative is wrong, but it's of crucial importance to show people that this ideology is problematic. This transhumanist and this technocratic ideology itself is a disaster for humanity. So this mechanistic thinking, this belief that the universe and uh, uh, man is a kind of material mechanistic system which should be steered and manipulated in a mechanistic technocratic transhumanist way that's the ultimate challenge to show people that in the end such a transhumanist view on man and the world will imply or will entail a radical dehumanization of our society so i think that's the real challenge we are facing showing mm-hmm. people like look forget for a moment about the corona about the corona narrative but that was that is what we are heading for if we are continuing uh, in the same way, what we will we will end up we will end we will arrive in a in a radically techno- technologically controlled transhumanist society, which will leave no space whatsoever for uh, uh, a really humane or or or, or um, a life for a human being. Um, it sure seems to be the case, and it seems like
0: we're rapidly heading towards global totalitarianism and right now to many it may not seem that way because as we're speaking in the middle of may about a month before your book launches um things seem to be in a low right might be in the eye of a hurricane or a tornado because the mask mandates for travel have been lifted you don't have to wear them when you're flying anymore thanks to leslie manukian's filing of a lawsuit against the uh, cdc mask mandate for, for, for air travel and just Across the country, and I, I suspect the globe, the mass mandates are coming down. You, you, when you travel now, you just see hardly anyone wearing them. There's still a few people within that 30% who are who are brainwashed. Uh, but I'm wondering what your views are because, it, to me, it seems like things are going to get much, much, much worse. And this was just a minor taste, and that we're in a lull. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, and then. So of course, we want to go and discuss some of the, the simple, practical things that we can do to prevent this from occurring.
1: Yeah, I also believe. I also believe that. Uh, you believe that we're getting, going to get it's going to get worse. Oh yes, it will get worse. Yes, of course. Like the. It, a, a, lot a lot worse. at the beginning. You are at the beginning of the process. Okay, good. I, I, it seems so obvious, but you know, you've
0: studied this much more carefully, and you you studied the history, which is such a foundational component of predicting the future. So I really yes, value we, your insights.
1: We, we we really well. There are many signs that we are really in the beginning of the process of a, of, of a totalitarianism, and uh, and but we it really we will we'll really have to have to understand and realize that. It will be of crucial importance to continue to speak out. Now I have stressed that several times. And mm-hmm. now, uh, but 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 but, um, in order to make sure to keep open a certain part, a small part for the people who do not want to go along with the system to survive. That's just crucial. Um, but I also expect it's clear that, like, um, the introduction, for instance, of the QR codes mm-hmm. here and uh, to were just. A small pilot study for the introduction of um, of a digital ID, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 this will be combined with uh, the introduction of digital coins um, uh, from the central banks. So we are facing really uh, an enormous um, system of of of, of digital uh, digitalized control. It's
0: not it's not so much a coin; it's a currency. It's an absolute total. Yes control of every aspect, financial aspect of your life and the ability to purchase food or anything or your shelter. Right. I mean, if they shut you off, you bet you're going to be homeless and you're, uh, you're on your own. And uh, that's a pretty severe st- stress for most people. Exactly. 21st century. You know, if this exactly. 19th century wouldn't be a big deal, but this is 21st.
1: Yes, of course, exactly. And, and, you know, there's one thing we always have to keep in mind. Everyone who studied uh, mass formation mm-hmm. and totalitarianism has concluded that both mass formation and totalitarianism are intrinsically self destructive. Mm, so That's encouraging. Okay, for, for, yes, for, for instance, a classical dictatorship can continue to exist for hundreds or thousands of years. Mm-hmm. If the classical dictator uses his brain and uh, loves his population even a little bit, then he might succeed in establishing a system that is very robust and, and that doesn't perish very soon.
0: You know, you know but, it's interesting you say that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Seyfede, who has written the book, The Bitcoin Standard, an absolute anarchist, said he's beginning to change his views and thinks a
1: benevolent monarchy might be the best option. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That might be the case, yes.
0: Yeah.
1: So, But in any case, the totalitarian system always destroys itself sooner or later. And now that's the interesting thing. The more means it has at its disposal to control the population and to impose its power to the population, the sooner it might destroy itself. Because totalitarianism destroys the core of the human being. Mm-hmm. it It tries to eliminate each space for a human being to make its own singular choices. That's what a totalitarian system tries to eliminate the world. the word the word totalitarianism refers to uh, the ambition totalitarian states always have to impose a total ideology or a total theory toward uh, on the pop on the population. so to control the population totally. and that in itself destroys the, really the core of the human being because uh, psychological energy uh, in a human being emerges at every moment. A human being can make a choice that is really its own choice, that it's, that it's not forced to by other people. So that's what human beings need. They need a certain privacy, a certain space where they can make their own choices. And at the, it is at that moment that someone can make a choice that is really his own choice, that he receives a little bit of energy, psychological energy. And a totalitarian state destroys this, this, this space in which people can make their own, their own choices. It really imposes one uniform ideology to everyone literally uh, in, a, in a totalitarian state everybody should dress in the same way should build the same houses and so on We will i, I think we will really very soon uh, see the same happening here people will uh, not be allowed anymore to build their house as they want it uh, they will use for instance a climate narrative to impose a certain uh, um way of living and of building houses uh, to everyone in the same way so that's this typical fanatic A way in which totalitarian leaders think they should organize society and all push it in the same uh, uniform uh, way of living. Um, So, but at the same time, while this happens, and the more the 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 government can control, or the more the the state system can control uh, the the individual, uh, the more it destroys the energy and, and individuals, and and the and the and the sooner. The system collapsed. So that's one thing. I cannot explain it in detail. I, I I talk about this in my book as well, but there are much more mechanisms at work. But in one way or another, totalitarianism always destroys itself. And now, as I said before, the only thing we have to make sure of is that, we, that, that by continuing to speak out, we can make sure that uh, there is a space, a small space, where the group who doesn't want to go along with the system uh, can try to survive and can continue to survive. And then, for if we want to succeed, we will have to think about uh, parallel structures, uh, mm-hmm. which which can allow us to to be a little bit self sufficient. And, and 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 which we can try to to um, um, to make sure that we don't need the system uh, too much mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, yeah. But even even these parallel structures. Would be destroyed in a in a in a moment if uh, if 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 the people do not continue to speak out. So that's so that's the crucial. Uh, I I try I try to bring this to the attention of everyone. Like we can build parallel parallel structures as much as we want, but if the system becomes too destructive and decides to use uh, uh, it's, its full potential, aggressive potential, then the parallel structures will be destroyed. But it will never the system will never reach this level of uh, depth of the hypnosis if there is dissonant voices that continue to speak out. So I'm definitely, I'm very uh, uh, convinced that I'm very dedicated to myself to, uh, to, uh, to continue to speak out. Uh,
0: okay, so let's reconcile those interesting perspectives on what's, in your guess or persp- uh, view, the most likely scenario. So th- we, we're in agreement that things are likely to get much worse. Ten per- it's only 10%, which shockingly surprises me, of the population who, st- who have retained their critical thinking skills. 60% are in nebulous area and 30% are brainwashed. Uh, uh, and essentially nothing we can ever do will change that view. Uh, is this brainwashing? I and mean, before I go and finish my question, is this brainwashing permanent? Can they ever get out of that, that uh, mass formation that they, they've been dug, <laughs>
1: dove really deep into? It depends. It depends. Like in the Soviet Union, uh, it seemed difficult for many people to really wake up even after the Soviet Union collapsed. Wow. But in many, system, in many other systems, people do wake up. And the strange thing is, after the system collapses, but the strange thing is that, well, the strange. I can we can understand it from a psychological point of view. But when when these people are being asked afterwards, like, how the hell, how could you participate mm-hmm. in the system? How could you believe? How could you really believe that the image of the Ayatollah Khomeini was printed on the moon? That there's something that uh, in Iran that uh, that uh, uh, the state. Uh, told people that the image of of the leader uh, Khomeini was printed on the surface of the moon and people believed it when it was a full moon they were looking up at the sky and and, and they saw actually saw the 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 image of uh, of the Ayatollah on the moon yes it's strange but it is like that and and so um most people when upon being asked afterwards like how could you believe this narrative they just don't know what the answer, and that's because because they were really in a state that is similar to to hypnosis. So can they wake up? Yes, uh, and and many of them then will start to realize what happened. Some of them probably not. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> okay, so we've got the
0: ten percent who are awake, sixty percent who are in the, in the nether world. So as it gets worse, is the sixty percent going to shift over to the Completely brainwashed, or will we lose any of the
1: 10% with critical thinking skills? Is, Are we going to go below that number? It depends what happens. No, we won't go below that number because once you see what's happening, uh, you never fall asleep. Okay, good, good, Yes. Good. Yes. 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 No, no. Um, rather the other way around. Some of the 60%, a certain percentage. To go to, the, go to the 30. So by, by 50, yes. 50, 40. Okay. No, no, and no. they will go to the ten percent as well. Oh, they some. will. Okay. Yeah, good. yes, yes. If they if they yes, see, good. if they see the damage done, and if they see what's happening, some of them might uh, might Wait, decide so. to. As uh... yes, it happens all the time, actually, in very small portions, but the group who, who decides to speak out is becoming larger, uh, and that's why. And that's that's what the system feels, and that's why it will become more uh, repressive. It will become more aggressive a little bit in several ways. Uh, probably in the nearby future because more and more people will start to feel like look um, i didn't speak up until now but now i feel that is that it is necessary to speak out in public space so that's the good news i think um, um but at the same time of course uh, we are still dealing with this uh with this well, substantial group uh, who is a uh, who is really deep into the into the hypnotic state
0: mm-hmm. and uh, who doesn't
1: who won't wake up even uh, if they, if they, if the system um, uh, will become fatal for themselves, that's we have seen is everywhere in the Soviet Union. Uh, the communist leaders who were uh, condemned uh, by Stalin, who, who received a death sentence uh, of Stalin, and who usually didn't uh, do anything wrong, mm-hmm. uh, they didn't complain at all. They yeah. just said, "Oh, they just said if 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 that's uh, what they can do for uh, for the communist party." Uh, it will be I'm my happy pleasure. To do happy to do yeah, it. I'm happy to do it. Yes. <laughs> so that's a, that sh, that's also shows very in a very concrete way that usually the leaders of the masses are hypnotized themselves. Mm-hmm. I know many professors um at university hospitals who just take the jabs while they are confronted with all these adverse effects uh, uh in their own hospitals or or who sometimes suffer severe adverse effects themselves. Um, That's one of the dramatic things about mass formation that it makes people willing to sacrifice themselves. (laughs) That's a- Yes, indeed. So Let's
0: seek to provide some range of estimates for the future. There's two scenarios. One is that we're able for whatever means or mechanism able to convince the significant percentage of the 10% to continue following your advice and speak out so that we don't stop because we know from historical perspective, when that speaking out stops, mm-hmm. it gets much, much worse in the very near future. So, oh. mm-hmm. so, so, say we get the good case scenario and everyone's continue speaking, how much longer to the other side, how, how long is it going to get bad for Is it two years, three years, four years, 10, 15, 20. Uh, and I, I know you can't give a specific, I'm not asking you to be a fortune teller, but, but. Just give a range in your gut feeling. How how much longer are we going to have to endure this this irrational craziness?
1: Yes, well, indeed, uh, Niels Bohr, the famous uh, physician Mm -hmm. who received the Nobel Prize. yes, a physicist, great. Great Yes. He he said, predicting is always difficult. In particular, particular if it is about the future, he said. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a Yogi Berra. Yes, well, my gut feeling, my gut feeling, for what it's worth tells yeah. me well something like seven or eight years that's what my gut feeling tells okay, me so by the end of the decade yeah before the system destroys itself okay. um but uh, well it, it could be less it could be more but mm-hmm. i think the, the most important thing is this we cannot be sure uh, about what will happen around us uh, it will be a definitely a very chaotic state because um the system will try to control Mm-hmm. society, but society is a complex dynamical system. Definitely. It's a complex dynamical system, and even simple complex dynamical systems can never be predicted. You can I describe that in my book as well, in the last part, how mm-hmm. even simple, complex dynamical systems, even if you have the mathematical formulas at your disposal that uh, determine uh, the the complex the, the system, even then you cannot predict the behavior of the system one second in advance. So that's, <laughs> yes, yes, but that's true, it's literally true that, they, that it's called a, a deterministic unpredictability of complex dynamical systems. And exactly the same holds, of course, holds true for, for society. There are now people who believe that they can control everything with a, a sophisticated technological system, but they will be confronted with a disaster. The more they try to control the system, the more chaotic it will become, and the less it will be uh, uh, it will be controlled, of controllable, and it will change in a way that is fundamentally unpredictable for everyone. And that's why um, many leaders now of this system uh, start to realize. That they will have to speed up their plans, <laughs> because they feel yeah. that they feel that things evolve in a way that uh, that they did not expect expect, and that that's typical. A complex dynamical system cannot be predicted and controlled, um, and so just we cannot never be sure about what will happen, and 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 everything will change, and we we cannot really prepare very very much uh, uh, for the changes or for for what will happen, but. We can be sure of something else. We can be sure that we will stick to the elementary principles of humanity. That's Mm -hmm. so important. That's the only thing we can be sure of, that we ourselves will stick to certain principles of humanity, which we will have to find out again. We feel a little bit what it is to be humane and we feel a little bit, we know a little bit about the principles of humanity but we will rediscover them uh, in, the, in, the, in the years to come. And that's something we can be sure of, that no matter how inhumane society around us becomes, that we will do our utmost best to, to stick to certain elementary principles of humanity. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, uh, he, he is the, he re- Alexander Solzhenitsyn is this Russian writer who received the Nobel Prize for his book The Gulag Archipelago, mm-hmm. a book he a book he wrote uh, during his uh, fifteen year stay in the Gulags of Stalin and in, in the concentration camps of Stalin, and he has this wonderful chapter in which he describes that uh, in the concentration camps uh, of Stalin the prisoners um, lost all ethical awareness and they became, they became beasts to each other. They became radically unethical, inhumane, cruel to each other, pre- prepared and willing to kill each other, to steal each other's food. And, but he also describes how there, how there was a small percentage of the prisoners who evolved, who went in exactly the opposite direction And they were very determined that in this pool of cruelty and inhumanity, uh, they would stick to the rules, to ethical rules themselves. And Solzhenitsyn describes something wonderful. He describes how many of these people who stick to, to their principles and to their ethical awareness many of these people became incredibly strong at the physical level. It's wonderful how he describes it. He describes that certain prisoners who refused uh, to steal other prisoners' food even if uh, uh, other people had stolen their food or he he, he described how when certain prisoners were punished by the guards uh, or were asked commanded by the guards to do something that uh, they could not consider ethical how they refused to do so, no matter what the punishment was. And he describes how these people typically, while being in the in the concentration camps, became stronger and stronger and stronger at the physical level. So very strange. He describes several examples. Not everyone, he said, became stronger and stronger and stronger, but many of them. And many of them survived the concentration camps, he said. Not all of them again. But I think that I think that. That's so important to keep in mind in the years to come. No matter what happens around us, no matter how inhumane the system becomes, I think the real challenge is to focus on this one aspect of human existence, namely that we should do our best uh, to to follow, to live up to a certain ethical awareness and that that maybe is uh, the one and only thing uh, that can guarantee us uh, uh, of the good outcome of, of the entire process, which is a necessary process. I think this mm-hmm. crisis, this crisis is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's 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 a it's a, it's, a, it's a process uh, in which uh, society can give birth to something new, something much better than than than, uh, than existed up until now um that's that that
0: is kind of like the silver lining of this whole process unfortunately there's going to be a lot of pain to get to that point but so just summarizing your recommendations one is to speak out consistently don't stop continue doing it uh ideally uh, face to face if you can uh maintain your ethical commitments and never never abandon it no matter how bad it gets no matter if they've Integrated the equivalent of the concentration, perhaps the FEMA camps that they're going to put people who are ostensibly infected or contaminated in these camps and keep them, or for speaking out because the the Ministry of Truth says you're a heretic and you're uh, a threat to society and get thrown in these camps, which is this is a very real possibility. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it is absolutely on the table. Uh, so. And the, the third thing you said is to be these parallel structures. And by that, I'm assuming you're suggesting that we engage in activities that has allowed us to become somewhat independent of the supply chain. So in other words, being able to access our own food, have our own energy, to have a community uh, so that we could survive without the state, essentially.
1: Mm, exactly so does,
0: that, does that seem to be a good summary? And if not, could you refine that, and then we can add any other recommendations you have.
1: No, yes, that, that's that are the the most important recommendations. I think first and for all, speak out. Second, indeed, we have to try to uh, establish certain structures that allow us to be a little bit independent. Probably not entirely, but a little bit independent. Is yes, as, independent like as, that. as possible, as you and possibly- also like yes. Yes. Well, it's, Is it possible? Yes. To a certain extent, it will be possible, I think. I also think that if we continue to speak out that um, uh, society will um, allow us to do so, actually. Um, that's also important. Uh, um, and there are other important things as well. In the end, what we have, what really has to happen is that we arrive at a, a new view on man and the world. We mm-hmm. have to We have to learn to think beyond the mechanistic ideology. Mm -hmm. We, every one of us, to a certain extent, is in the grip of this mechanistic ideology, which emerged starting someone in the beginning of the sixteenth century, in which makes us believe that essentially the universe and the human being is a material phenomenon, uh, a set of elementary particles, atoms, neur- uh, 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 neutrons and so on, elementary particles which um, behave in a mechanistic way and which can be completely and un- rationally understood. And mm-hmm. as long as we think in this way, we will end up in totalitarianism. <laughs> That's something Hannah Arendt also described like totalitarianism ultimately is a consequence of mechanistic thinking and she, she doesn't she doesn't describe the psychological mechanisms at work she's not a psychologist and that's what i describe in my book i describe why exactly this view on man and the world ultimately leads to social isolation then to mass formation and then to totalitarianism so the real ultimate cause of totalitarianism is this mechanistic view men in the world. And uh, in, in between my 16 and my 20 years, old, when I was about 16 years old, I also fanatically believed in this mechanistic thing. Or at least I really believed in, the, in, the, in this mechanistic view of men in the world. It took me 15 years, I think, to start to understand, uh, just by learning about physics and also about complex dynamical systems theory, that it is not true, that the world is not, there is a, a certain part of the world can be understood in a rational way, in a mechanist way, mm-hmm. but the major, the major part of the world uh, can never be rationally understood and can only be known in a different way, by empathically resonating with it. Uh, Renee Tom one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century described this in a very eloquent way he also said like that part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is extremely limited and for the rest we can only know the things around us by empathically resonating with them and it is this new yeah it's it's this new kind of knowing this new kind of knowledge this new kind of understanding the world that's what we can expect everything of. If the more we cultivate that, the more we succeed in uh, resonating with the world around us, uh, the more we'll see how the most fascinating potentials are discovered in the human being. You know, and or- it, it sure sounds like you're
0: referring to frequencies when you're saying resonating. And it's it's a frequency thing. It's maybe the missing comp- component which is a form of energy, which is a, another form of spirituality. Yes, so this, this is the missing piece of the equation that's not integrated into most of the things. So is, it, is that fair to summarize your, what you ju-
1: just said? Yes, that's fair and indeed. And I think uh, all the major scientists before us, uh, Janos Bolyai, uh, Max Planck, uh, Heisenberg Schrodinger, um, Niels Bohr, uh, mm-hmm. Edward Lawrence, Mandelbrot, they all arrived at the same conclusion. Rationality is extremely limited. We can only know a part of reality through rationality. And for the rest, they all moved from a materialist view on men and the world to a much more mystical view on men and the world, in which they claimed a central importance of uh of a of, of a resonating way of knowing the world. And that I, I believe that. Just to arrive at this new kind of way to, of knowing the world, we just have to follow rationality until the utter limit. That's what we have to do. And then we will get in touch with uh, this other way uh, to know the things around us, which is much more fundamental and which, which allows us also to overcome our fear for death and suffering because that's one of the major problems of our culture and our society Mm -hmm. that in one way or another we are not capable anymore Uh, we cannot stand the idea of dying the idea of suffering anymore and as soon as you start to be connected to the world in a more resonating way you start to feel and to intuitively know that you're part of something Uh, That is eternal, a kind of resonance, a kind of consciousness, a kind of eternal music of life. And that's, I believe, what uh, can make uh, us less afraid of death and accept uh, uh, that sooner or later uh, we will die, that there is suffering in the world uh, without, uh, yeah.
0: And I, I believe it's not just less, I think you can absolutely have no fear of death ultimately. And mm. it's, it's, it's not an unreasonable goal. And that it, if you are able to integrate this strategy that you just outlined, that you will get intuitive guidance as to what the next step is, because we just don't know, we can't predict the future, but be, become intuitively obvious mm. uh, when things start to fall apart, depending on how they fall apart, what you need to do next so that you can rely on this intuitive wisdom to figure things out too, but you still need to be committed to some basics, but just understand there's, there's, a, there's a deeper uh, element that needs to be accessed to help really get the information you need. Because I mean, in some ways, you know, you're, you're convinced that it's a self-destructive process, but it, it's a pretty significant existential threat to humanity, what they're doing. I mean, the, the eugenics component, I mean, they're looking at reducing the population by 90, 95%. Uh, that's not gonna wipe out this, the, the species, but it's, it's pretty significant. So um, it's, it's, it, in many ways it's a battle, but I think fear, getting out of fear and get, especially eliminating the fear of death is a, definitely a powerful tool in your arsenal to, to have, because it's going to give you a lot more freedom and and ability to move around. Indeed. Yeah. So any, any other strategies you'd like to recommend? This was really great. I mean, I'm just loving your philosophical perspective. Maybe one, maybe one more thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One more thing. Maybe I think. It doesn't make sense to try to convince people to go back to the old normal. <laughs> oh yes, yes. I have the feeling that <laughs> that's many what caused people, it. <laughs> yes, there are many 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 people who who uh try to speak out try to convince everyone everyone of the absurdity of the rules and the corona measures now and so on. But they often make the impression in that way that Uh, They try to convince people to go back to the old normal, but nobody wants to go back to the old normal. The old normal, that was the old normal with uh, these epidemics of burnouts, uh, the bullshit jobs, uh, uh, the antidepressant use, uh, and so on, the rat race of life. That was exactly, it was exactly because people didn't want the old normal anymore, that they were sensitive and that they were willing to accept all these lockdowns and corona measures. So... Um, so we, we never should try to to convince people to go back to the old normal, but we should try to show people that there are several options to escape the old normal and that we do not necessarily have to move uh, to a to a society in which there is a social credit system and mandatory vaccination uh, and so on. So we have to show people, I think, that there are different options, that uh, there are other options than um, than the transhumanist society uh, to escape the old normal. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's also something from a tactical, strategical point of view that is very important uh, to keep in mind. Yes.
0: yes, indeed. We're going to have the new normal, not the old normal. And it's going to be inspired by this connection to the source, really, that mm-hmm. will... Help us understand how we can improve things, not not go back to the fatally flawed systems of the past that were essentially controlled and by uh, these corporate oligarchs who, you know, c- captured most of the financial power in the world and been able to implement these systems. So, we've got some some challenges ahead of us, but uh, you've given us some really good food for thought and, and historical philosophical grounding and how to be prepared for this. So. Really thank you for your work. I thank you for writing the book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. If you have any interest in this topic, I strongly recommend picking up a copy of this book because it's 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 not it's not like Hannah Arendt's book. It's really easy to read. It's enjoyable. It makes sense. It's really straightforward. So I'm so glad it was all, it was originally written in Dutch, which made it a challenge. I wanted to pick up a copy so badly, but thankfully it was translated and now it's available in English. So. Uh, Definitely highly recommended. Well, thank you very much, very much for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. And do you have any other, other than your book, any other recommendations for people who want to find more about what you're doing?
1: Oh, well, I've given several podcasts, of course, Mm -hmm. were available on the internet, but I think my book is the the most best way to do it. Yeah, Yeah. and
0: and thank you for mentoring Robert Malone. I know he went over to, uh, was it, he visited you in Belgium, didn't he?
1: In Spain. uh, Spain.
0: Okay, yeah, you know, I know you guys connected and you were you were mentoring Spain. He's such an important influence over here. such a smart guy and
1: yes, 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 definitely such
0: such integrity. I mean, this guy is amazing. So thank you for helping him understand these principles so he can be more
1: uh, more of a powerful voice in helping speak to the truth. Yeah. And the 12 yes, if we can help each other, we definitely should do it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for everything you're doing really appreciate thanks. it. Thanks for inviting me.
0: All right.